Welcome to the Apex Report, a podcast brought to you by journalist Christopher Johnson. This podcast was produced in light of the global political uncertainty we find ourselves in. On this podcast, we will follow the most pressing international news stories of the day and analyse their implications on the world we live in. In 2020, the Department of Homeland Security in the United States described white supremacist groups as posing the gravest terror threat to the US. According to the FBI, 2019 was the nation's most lethal year for domestic terrorism since the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. That same year, 31 people were killed by domestic terrorists, 21 of which were linked to white supremacists. The UK is also seeing a growth in far-right extremism. According to Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu, right-wing extremism is the UK's fastest-growing threat, with more and more young people being sucked in by hateful ideology they find online. On today's episode, I speak to Kurt Braddock, author of the book Weaponized Words, The Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization, about the ramifications of the growth of white supremacist groups and what more needs to be done to stop it. What is kind of going on politically at the moment in the States and what's your view on this very kind of tumultuous transition and do you think that kind of the rhetoric that's been spewed out could lead to you know violence um, on the streets is that is that a possibility is that something that you've considered happening? Yeah um, well I think you you hit the nail on the head when you when you said um, kind of the transition is what's going on politically in the States um, I think that that's kind of the the main catalyst, but but what's pushing everything right now, in terms of what's going on with the far right, there, there's there's some interesting observations coming out now that the far right is almost coalescing now. We have a bunch of different areas of the far right. So we have um, the conspiracy theorists, we have your more traditional neo Nazis, we have uh, people like the Proud Boys who who claim not to be neo Nazis and they claim to be uh, kind of men's rights types. Um, but they, all of their ideologies are starting to kind of come together into one large kind of not really well-defined ideology, but th- they're becoming allied in some ways. So I think that um, what we're seeing is a, is a lot of frustration on, on the far right surrounding the election. That's kind of what they found to be kind of their their... They're magnetic north. They're all drawn to that as what's driving their, their grievances. Um, in terms of whether or not there can be violence on the streets, I mean, we've already seen some of it. Um, it thus far, we haven't seen anything too large scale. Um, but my concern is that they've kind of left that so far to um, what President Trump has been doing in terms of still, still um, uh, arguing against the election results and still saying that uh, it was it was a large cheat and all these other things. Um, my concern is that um, when he does leave office and he will leave office, all, all of his court cases are are falling flat on their faces. I think that's when we're going to start to see a bit of an uptick in, in violence in the streets and more feelings of justification among the groups to actually take some kind of action. So I do think that we're going to see increased violence by some elements of the far right, which ones are going to kind of um, take the baton and do it. I'm not sure. They all have the pot. They all have the potential to do it. Um, but but yeah, I think that uh, we do have a, a chance, or we, there is a possibility for an uptick in violence because of this transition. I mean, there were always there was trends of kind of 
um, more and more people joining far-right organisations, um, getting involved, becoming radicalised. I know in the context of the UK, there's been a case of, you know, a, a boy as young as nine being radicalised through far-right video games and on sites and using social media. So how great is this threat to the US and to the UK? And what needs to be done to curb it and to bring people into um, a, kind of an, an understanding that those types of ideologies are not ones that should be acceptable in um, our liberal Western democracies? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's a big question as to what we should do. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, there have been some researchers, some experts who've been warning about this since, at least in the U.S., since the Obama years, because we've seen this increase in recruitment and radicalization among young people, too, like you've said, um, for, I mean, we're talking eight years now. Um, when Trump took office, it really kind of exponentially grew because he said all the things that justified and validated what their, their beliefs were. And um, to kind of emphasize what you said, yeah, the, the, the radicalization problem among young people is here as well. So it's growing at an exponential rate in terms of who's being drawn into, into the movement or movements. Um, as far as what needs to be done to stop it, I mean, it it, there's several things that need to be done, if you ask me. Number one, um, political leaders need to stop making statements that are implicitly violent or implicitly condone violence or tacitly accept violence. I mean, step one is uh, the president of the United States should not be saying things like stand back and stand by. Um, the U.S. senator shouldn't be saying things like if there was a civil war, the South has three trillion bullets. That's something that one of our senators said. Um, we've had other state senators or state legislators say things along the lines of um, there needs to be a holy war in the United States and 10% of the other side, their men need to be killed if they don't accept Christianity. So there have been the thing, these things said by political leaders and political leaders should not be making these statements. Whether they believe them or not, they don't need to be saying these things because they do tacitly approve violence and they justify violence. Um, so that's step number one. Step number two is um, we've gotten better. We're not good, but we've gotten better in the last five to seven years at counter messaging. Um, counter messaging when it first began, I mean, obviously it focused on Islamic terror, but the 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 focus has shifted, and we've gotten better at it. We're we're focusing more on um, things like monitoring and evaluating the sorts of things that we do to see whether what we're actually putting money to, into actually works. That's another step. But something that I think that is still a little bit overlooked is the need to organize with um, community-level organizations. So um, yes, the government should be organizing things like counter-messaging campaigns, but without uh, organizing with these groups on the ground to have a vested interest in dealing with the people in the communities, I don't know how much success we'll have. So it's going to take a, uh, a level of cooperation between the federal level and the community level to make this actually work. I wanted to ask you about the rhetoric, because you're right, I think when you have, you know, the, the leader of the free world making statements like that, it, um, it, you know, people become emboldened and it becomes acceptable. But I 
wonder whether for kind of department the department of homeland security and um, organizations within government that are trying to you know fight against um the rise of you know these white supremacist groups and are aware of how dangerous they are um when they there are government official when there are you know legislatures um elected officials that use this rhetoric whether they do it on purpose to rile up their base because they know that's kind of the proportion of the they're the electorate that will vote for them to you know ensure that they have their seats um in power um how do, how is that impacting their ability to curb the rise of these far right groups when you have these politicians who know if i use this language that's very incendiary it's going to rile people up that are going to vote for me in the end how, how are they dealing with that yeah, luckily, in my experience, um, although the elected officials do make these statements, they make these very problematic statements, like you said, whether deliberately or just kind of in passing. Um, my experience is that the individuals that are kind of, um, for lack of a better term, the foot soldiers in the Department of Homeland Security, in the FBI, the ones who are actually doing the work of um, stemming violence, they recognize the, the threat that right-wing violence poses. So they are more than happy to engage with academic experts, other people, to, um, to listen to ideas that might help curb this sort of thing. So I'll give you an example. Um, I just got a study funded by the Dep Department of Homeland Security that specifically looks at how right-wing disinformation riles people up. So, I mean, if you, you want to look at right-wing disinformation, I mean, there's no other place to look other than the president of the United States on things that might rile people up. And yet the Department of Homeland Security funded a study that I'll be doing um, to look at that very thing. So although we see these public-facing figures saying these things that are really problematic, I do think that the Department of Homeland Security and our other, our other agencies do recognize this threat and they recognize that it needs to be engaged with. Um, so some of the things that they are looking at engage with these problems, like I've mentioned, like this, these kind of implicitly violent statements, and I'm working on a study on that right now as well, um, and how that riles people up. But I, I, I get the impression, um, that the ones who are in charge of making the decisions about where funding goes, where the efforts go, um, they recognize the threat that the right wing poses. So sometimes you see almost um, kind of different messages coming from the same agency, but eventually it, it, it evens out to that good is being done despite what we see in public statements from public figures. Do you think that because for, you know, much of um, recent history, the focus was on kind of Islamist terrorism, and I think especially within the media as well, that has been something that we've seen, especially since 9-11 and what ensued after that. Did that kind of maybe allow for a vacuum where these other groups could kind of develop and gain more following? And obviously with the rise of social media to use that to, to kind of, to their advantage, to um, radicalize more people whilst people are focusing on, you know, a specific type of terrorism rather than focusing on them. Do you think that has had anything to do with the rise that we're seeing in, in the far right? Uh, I think so. Um, I think that the the overwhelming focus on Islamist terror went on for uh, quite 
longer than it needed to in the United States. Um, clearly, there's a reason to focus on Islamist terror. It's still a threat. It's still out there. I mean, ISIS uh, came to power or began to rise in, what, 2013? So that wasn't that long ago. So it, it was still there. Um, so there's a reason to focus on that to some degree. But I don't know if it was a vacuum so much as um, just resources were not being put towards what was clearly a growing problem with respect to right-wing terror. Um, I said the year 2008 before. Um, in 2008, um, when President Obama was elected, we saw a huge spike in uh, right-wing extremism in the U.S. And although it kind of stayed below the radar and they, they, there weren't active attacks uh, going on at that point, at least not to the degree we're seeing now, um, those radicalization and recruitment efforts were going on as far back as 2008 and before. So they were always there. It's just that since the ascension of Trump and in Europe, kind of other populist type leaders, um, we, we see that, that the right feels much more comfortable being out in the open and saying what they couldn't say before because they feel like the public, uh, the public figures back them. So they feel much more comfortable doing so. So it's always been there. It's just the, the fact that now that it's been justified and that they feel like they have at least the tacit support of the leaders, they feel as though that um, what they're doing is, in a sense, to the benefit of, of the countries that they, that they live in. So I think that the focus on Islamist terror did have, did have an effect on how we contend with the uh, with right-wing terrorism, um, and I think that now we're kind of seeing the uh, the repercussions of those decisions. I wonder what you think about kind of maybe applying, because we've seen this kind of reckoning with race, as people call it, after the, the murder of George Floyd um, and kind of the outpouring onto the streets throughout the world of people protesting against anti-black racism, and you know, these two things are tied, right? And I think it shows there's a deeper issue within American society, not just in America, but I think throughout the world around, you know, who is British, who can be American, who should have power, who shouldn't. Um, what strategies do you think could be done to ensure that society and this is a very very difficult question but if you tackle racism and you change people's hearts and minds then they won't necessarily have to be in these groups because they'll realize that you know that a black person or a chinese person or someone from latin america um they're americans just like me we're all in this together. We are one country. We're, we're one people, though we look different and come from different places. That's what the experiment of America is founded on, that you can have so many different people from all over the world living in one place in a messy democracy that, you know, sometimes falters but works um, for, for everyone. Um, how can you get those people to understand that and to see that other people having rights isn't actually taking away from the rights that they already enjoy. Yeah, and it, you, you again hit the nail on the head in that the, a lot of the, the right-wing extremism that we're seeing now, I think, is derived from the sorts of things we saw over the summer with the George Floyd protests and, and the reckoning with race in the U.S. Um, it, it's almost counterintuitive, but for me, watching that occur, um, it, it's... It was heartening in a way for me because 
the the George Floyd protests, I mean, they went around the world and in the United States, they they got a lot of people out in the streets and it was a lot of people that wouldn't have been in the streets even 5, 10, 15 years ago. So there's this strange dynamic where this this quote reckoning with race is is bringing more people to the idea that yes, we're all one people, we're all Americans, we all should be protected. And that that movement I think is growing even faster than the far right movement. Um, the the counterpoint to that, the 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 opposite to that, is that the far right sees that, and they see that the kind of the um, the anti racism people, the the people who who do believe that we're all equal here in the United States, they see that 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 proportion of people is growing, and that is a threat. That is a, a moral threat to white supremacy in the United States, which the U.S. has historically been a white supremacist nation. Um, so they that by seeing that threat, by seeing the people come out in the streets in support of George Floyd, in support of of anti-racist tendencies, they see that they need to do something now. So it upticks the their their motivation to engage in recruitment radicalization practices, and in some cases to engage in violence. Um, how do you bring them into the fold as well? I mean, that is that's a huge question. That's kind of the question. Um, I'll be curious to see. I mean, it's it's only starting now here in the U.S., but I'll be curious to see in 10, 15 years how some of the um, anti-racism education initiatives are, what kind of effects they're going to have moving forward, because there are these initiatives that are being that are being taught to children um, more. I mean, when I was a kid, we were taught about um, equality and things like that, but nothing to the degree that the children are getting now. So I'll be curious to see what those initiatives, what kind of impact they have. Um, I also think some of the strategic communication practices that are done on a large scale for adults can also be scaled down to, for, for children to get to them early, because I think that's also the key. Um, you mentioned earlier that you saw that there were people as young as nine years old being radicalized into the far right movement. And, and that just speaks volumes, right? I mean, it, it's, it's all about being able to get there first before the, um, the white supremacists get their hooks into them. So I, I think that part of it is going to be building in these anti-racist initiatives into um, educational platforms and educational initiatives. Um, I think schools need to take the um, the the platform and, and the position of anti-racism um, much more make it much more center in, in in their in their curricula, which I actually think they're doing more and more, at least in some places in the United States. Um, it is a big question. I think it starts when when the target audiences are young, um, but despite all everything that's happened in the last I guess six months with the protests and everything else. Um, for me, it's heartening to see that the number of people who are coming out in in favor of anti-racism, which is kind of a weird thing to say, in favor of anti-racism, are 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 growing. They're growing and they're growing louder. So that's useful. And the problem is that with that comes conflict with the racists themselves. Uh, it does sound heartening, but then I also think that, especially since we've just seen this election it wasn't necessarily a repudiation of Trump. And whether you like him or not, he is very intelligent in how he's tapped into 
you know, racial politics. And it's always been a part of America. I mean, when you look at the Republican National Convention, there were two people invited, the couple, that they were there just because they, you know, waved their guns at, you know, a group of black people walking past their house. And yet, still, with mm-hmm. those kind of obvious um, dog whistles, and I think people now are more kind of aware of, of it in, in a way that they probably weren't before, maybe I can, if I give them the benefit of the doubt. But yet, still, he garnered so much support and with, you know, black and ethnic minorities as well within the States. So um, to what extent do you think that kind of that politics, which I think is tied in emboldening those, you know, white supremacist groups, it, it is, is here to stay? I mean, I, frankly, I'm not so sure how optimistic I am about, you know, this racial reckoning. I, I'm, I, I'll believe it when I really see it, I, you know, because it, it, it just seems that so many people are quite invested in this idea or are okay with looking the other way as long as it doesn't impact them directly. Yeah, there, that definitely is a factor in the U.S. and that there are people who are happy to speak out in one direction than vote in another direction. Um, I think, uh, and the reason I say I'm heartened, um, I could see why, why you have doubts too, considering 70 plus million voted for Trump. The reason I'm heartened is that 85 million came out and voted against Trump and the kind of that they did repudiate it. Um, the, I, I see it's, 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 it's a strange thing to say that I'm glad that this is coming to the surface and that the sides are, are polarized at the moment because it forces us to contend with exactly what you said. It makes us think about that, yes, this many people voted against Trump, but this many people voted for Trump. It, we can't hide behind things anymore and pretend that there aren't these people out there with these beliefs and attitudes. It forces us to, to reckon with it, to use a term we've been using so far. It forces us to, to recognize that there are people who, who have these beliefs, these racist beliefs, for one reason or another, and they let them dictate what their politics are. So although heartened might be the wrong word, I am um, I'm motivated to take part in, in this kind of reckoning with uh, the polarization that's going on in the U.S., in a sense that um, the people who have held racist beliefs for the last 40 years have been content to keep them quiet, but they're not quiet anymore. So we can identify who they are. We can see more clearly what the problems are, and we can't hide from it anymore. So it forces us to contend with the problem in a way that we hadn't had to before. I also want to ask you about um, the role of you know Fox News, because um, it's a very... That echo chamber is it's 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 fascinating. I mean, to to because I think that's, that's one thing. That's one thing to call it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the I think the media cultures in Britain in comparison to the US are quite different. Our papers are allowed to just kind of say anything, whereas our kind of news organisations, so like television broadcasters, are meant to be impartial. You can, you know, there's a there's a regulator called Ofcom which ensures that they are in the middle and they aren't kind of giving a particular opinion we don't have opinion hosts on the bbc like you see on cnn or on fox news not to say i mean there is an argument that maybe they are one could be on the right one could be more on the left there's um, a movement to defund the bbc because people are saying that it's too far too far left but we do have i would say more of an impartial culture in regards to our television broadcasters whereas in the states i mean people are just able to say you know absolutely anything so what 
kind of role does Fox News have in stoking, you know, the flames of, of you know, white supremacist ideology? Oh, a center role. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting on what's going on now. Um, kind of Fox News has made this, this situation where um, people rely, well, their, their viewers rely on them to maintain that echo chamber. And, and for four years, they've, made, they've been happy to maintain that echo chamber. They've been happy to put Hannity on, put Carlson on, and just say outright lies and stoke fear about, uh, I mean, the dog whistles that they use on Fox News are incredible. I mean, they, they basically use things like criminal riot as, as a fill-in for, you know, protest and black. They, it, it's, it's incredible what they do there. And that's what the viewers want. They, 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 they want their, their beliefs reinforced. And that's not just a reputation of, of um, Fox News viewers. That's just a human tendency. We want our beliefs reinforced because it makes us feel good. The problem is that Fox has created such an echo chamber that if anything permeates it, people don't know what to do. They go nuts. So we're in a situation now where Fox News, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now at this point, kind of saw the writing on the wall with what's going on with Trump, that Trump was going to lose the election. They saw that coming. Um, after the election was over, they kind of put up some weird little fight about the, the, the states in which he was putting up a fight for a little bit. Um, but now there, there's some cases where um, on Fox, they, they're going against what the president's saying. And now, all of a sudden, all these Fox News viewers are saying that, oh, Fox is part of the deep state now. Fox, is, Fox has been compromised. So now they're moving to things like um, One America News Network, which is like the new Fox News, and Newsmax, which is even farther right. So they're looking for this new echo chamber. So Fox's role was to create, I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't invent the echo chamber, but they did a very good job in refining the right-wing echo chamber in the U.S., and now, having done that, their, their viewers, they need it. They, they, they can't, most of their viewers can't handle or can't comprehend arguments to the contrary. And this isn't just saying on the right. There's a lot of people on the left that are very much the same. Um, but I've never seen a situation where an organization that was so well-trusted and so relied on for so long um, said one word in the other direction and then their viewership abandoned them for somebody else who was happy to kind of refill that echo chamber. It's amazing. So I, th I think Fox has basically, they've created the platform that set the stage for, uh, for what we're seeing now. I also wanted to ask you about Antifa. So we heard so much about Antifa really this year. How dangerous is it? Um, to what extent is it actually a really dangerous organization yeah. in comparison to um, these white supremacist groups? Well, I try to, in all, in all my work and all my commentary, I try to let the data dictate what I say or dictate my judgments about things. And here's the comparison between Antifa or anti-fascists more generally and the far right. Um, in the last, I think, I'm going to say I'm going to say 15 years at least. I think the actual number is 25 years, but I'm going to say 15 to make conservative. Um, how many people do you think have been killed by um, anti-fascists, extremists? If you had to guess. I'm going to say under 10. It's under 10. It's one. It's one. In the last 15 years, yeah. Yeah, so one person has been killed by anti-fascist terrorists, anti-fascist extremists in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, this year, 
and last year alone, we're looking at dozens of people who've been killed by far-right terrorists. So, I mean, I understand why right-wing politicians want to push Antifa to the front because it gives them a boogeyman for people to be scared of. Um, it gives it, it gives kind of this counterbalance to the far right to make it seem as though that there is a legitimate enemy that they're fighting against rather than just attacking civilians who are out protesting. So it gives them an enemy to target. But that enemy is not nearly as dangerous as they want them to be. It's not even close. Um, if you look at um, left-wing violence more generally, not just Antifa violence, I think in the last two years, or maybe it's just the last year again, I'm forgetting the data exactly, but right-wing uh, extremists are responsible for three times the number of attacks as left-wing extremists. It's not even close. It, like, the data is not even close. And I, I've, I've done interviews where they've clearly wanted me to say, well, aren't both sides this way? And it's just the data don't, if they were, I'd be happy to say it. I'd be glad to say that the data are close in terms of who, if they're equal in terms of threat. But the truth is, they're just not. It's just, it's just not there. Um, now, if you want to talk about things like destruction of property and things like that, then, yeah, you might be able to add a couple more um, attacks, quote, attacks to the Antifa slash, slash left-wing pile. But if you add right-wing attacks to property, it would boost theirs up as well. So, I mean, it, it, the short answer to this is, do I think Antifa is a threat to, uh, to people? And do I, th do I think it's a threat in terms of violence? No, I don't. And if we're comparing them against right-wing violence, then it's not even close. The right-wing right -wing violence is the much bigger threat. Why do you think, you mentioned that you've had interviews and people are asking you, well, you know, can't you make a comparison between the two? Why do you think that with the data and with how obvious it is that actually one side is worse than the other and one side is more of a threat, um, why are people trying to make a false equivalence? I think, um, I don't think there's any kind of nefarious intention in doing so. Honestly, I think it's because having two sides to a quote battle makes for a better story. It makes it seem more interesting if you have two sides fighting over kind of the soul of America. And on one side, you've got Antifa. On the other side, you've got the far right. And depending on what your political beliefs are, one's the good guy, one's the bad guy. I think that, that that's a lot of what drives it. Um, I think it, it also has to do with the fact that um, some of, uh, you, we mentioned earlier about how um, news outlets in, in the UK are different than they are in the US and that you have uh, a watchdog saying that, okay, you can say this, you can't say this. Um, I think that there is, uh, there are some news agencies, I mean, Fox notwithstanding, that feel as though that they have to do this both sides thing to have legitimacy to make it seem like they're not being leaning one way or the other. Um, I have the benefit of being an academic and saying, I look at the data, so here's the answer. And um, I don't lose sponsors if, if my sponsors don't like what I have to say, you know. But this could, I mean, that, that's such a huge question in terms of the state of the media in the U.S. and whether or not we should have kind of that watchdog. And I definitely have my opinions about that as well. Um, but, but I think mostly it has to do with the fact that we have this grand narrative in our heads, just people. We have, we've, we've grown up with stories that there's a good guy and there's a bad guy, and it makes more sense in the story if, if we have that in, in, in our real-world stories as well. So I think a lot of it's driven by that. Um, why did you get into anti-racist work by any chance? What, what made you interested in this field and having an understanding of kind of, um, you know, 
the dangers of white supremacy schools, especially as a as a white person, a white man, what has driven you into that study? Because you're extremely passionate about it and you know so much and you're very articulate about how serious this problem is and what brought you to 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 where you are today? Well, it started, I mean, I started my study in terrorism very generally. I was very just kind of, it was September 11th that really got me into understanding the psychology of terrorism generally. And I mean, you can imagine throughout the 2000s, it was all focused on Islamist terror. Um, <clears throat> but something that always stuck with me and it never sat well with me was that in the immediate aftermath of kind of uh, September 11th, for like the next eight to 10 years, um, there were these calls on Muslims to, quote, clean up their backyard, to take care of the radical Islamists in their midst, to, to weed them out so we don't have to worry about them, things like that. And I mean, that's an unfair argument to make, first of all. Um, but it stuck with me because it seemed hypocritical because I, I had always I remember I was 14 when it happened, but I remember the Oklahoma City bombing and nobody had ever said, why don't the white people weed out Timothy McVeigh? Why don't they weed out? Uh, Terry Nichols. Why don't we weed these people out? So um, I did my PhD. I did it just generally on terrorist narratives. I actually, ironically, my my focus group wasn't a white supremacist group. It wasn't anti. It was a it was a animal rights extremist group. But um, as soon as I got out of uh, my PhD, I started moving towards the the the, the far right for two reasons. Um, number one. Um, I grew up in an area where, I mean, there, I mean, any area in the U.S., you're going to have a contingent of racists, but I was around a lot of it. So I recognized it as a problem even growing up. Um, so it was something that I wanted to help take care of. Number two, like I said, back when I first, when September 11th happened and Muslims were unfairly called upon to clean up their backyards, that stuck with me. I said, you know what? Why don't white people clean up their backyards? So it shouldn't fall to black people and other minorities to take on white supremacists. Um, so it, it struck me that if, if, if people are going to unfairly call on other ethnicities to clean up their backyards and take care of the extremists in their midst, the white people should do the same. Um, so, that's kind of what I, I like to think that I'm doing, that I'm trying to help clean up the white person backyard. So before we start casting stones, we need to take care of things ourselves. Thank you for tuning into the Apex Report. This episode was brought to you by Anchor FM, the easiest way to make a podcast.